gonna bring Dr. Ellen up for our third session. Brother Reggie. All right, before we jump in, I do want to kind of go around from table to table and um, just for about three or four minutes, indulge me. I want you to fill in the blanks here. A lot has been said, but my mind is still thinking about blank. A lot has been said, but my mind is still thinking about blank. And just I want to go around the room, just put it out there, raise your hand. I'm just curious to see what's happening with you all. Who wants to be first? Don't be bashful. Bob, what about Bob? Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Is it really me or is it him? Okay. All right. I can answer that for you if you want me to. But I'll, I'll let you work that out. I won't answer it for you. Anybody else? Anything on your mind? Again, yes, ma'am. And I'm going to come over here to you. Yes, ma'am. Say it again. Pride. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about that today, too. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> he will. God will give you what you need. That, that's a guarantee. Yes, ma'am. Then come to you. Yes, ma'am. They really need it, right? They need it. I got you. Yes, ma'am. Okay. That's good. That's good. Yes, sir. <laughs> He's glutton for punishment. He says he came back for more punishment. This is, these are love taps, brother. They're just love taps. <laughs> Anybody else, just before we dive in, I've said a lot, but this is on your brain. I'm sorry I missed you here, and then I'll come back to you right here. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we're called, but we don't need it. And, and here's the, the trick. Psychology has led us to believe that we need things that the Bible says we don't need. Because can you obey God without it? I mean, if my wife doesn't show me respect tomorrow, can I obey God and still show love to her? So then I don't need it. I just want it real bad. You know, if your husband doesn't love you tomorrow, can you just show respect for him? Absolutely. Because you don't need it. You just want it real bad. And the moment we reduce it to something we need, then we can justify bad attitudes when we don't get it, which is exactly what the culture does. You know, because... You know, that's the, yeah, but, that's the excuses. Well, because you didn't do this, that's why I act this way. No, because I wanted what I wanted, didn't get what I wanted, I'm having a temper tantrum. That's why I'm acting this way. And it's not a need, because if it was a need, God would provide it. Does that make sense? And I tell people all the time, you know, because I have men, well, you know, my wife hadn't respected me for 20 years, and I need to be respected. And I say, imagine that, you've survived, and you're still alive. And you're still breathing, but yet God hasn't given it to you yet, and you're still alive without it. Imagine that. So maybe you don't need it as much as you think you do. Maybe it's just the center of your world, and you've reduced the relationship to that. Does that, does that make sense? So 
it, it's, you know, I, I go a lot of places and I try to challenge people on it because I know that book has been out for years, Love and Respect. And in my doctoral program, I had to critique it and I had to really analyze it. And I went through every chapter and I thought, there's some great stuff in here. But the problem is, it's manipulative. And I thought about my dad, media greedy. I liked everything I read. I really did, because I'm thinking, that's right. If my wife would do this, I, it would just be great. <laughs> but what if she doesn't? Does that give me the excuse to be irresponsible? Or is our relationship based upon you give me what I want, I give you what you want, and then we'll all be happy, which explained to me so much of why married couples would come for counseling and be frustrated. They wanted a formula. They didn't want to live by faith. They wanted a formula. And I was like, oh. So you didn't ask for all of that, but just good stuff. Yes, here and then here. Yes, ma'am. Say it again. Yes. That, to me, was such an eye-opener because I can't tell you how many people I would blame for my decisions. Oh, my goodness. So good. Yes. <laughs> how many of you know yeah but Christians? I mean, I'm just curious. Oh, my goodness. I could do a whole series on yeah but. I mean, just... And it could be right there in front of them, and I would hear, yeah, but. Like, Are you kidding me? It's right there, and you're saying you agree with everything that you see, but? Anybody else? I think I missed somebody before we go. Going once, going twice, yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I have discovered when you believe people ought to do or you believe they should treat you a certain way, you're very insensitive to those people. And you know what I found? People who are the most critical are the most insecure and defensive. Have you ever noticed that? They can dish it out, but boy, they cannot take it. You know, you're this, you're that. Well, let me tell you about you. <gasps> How dare you tell me about me? Well, you've been spending hours talking to me about me. Anybody else before? Yes, sir. You keep getting stuck on the concept of being stuck. <laughs> there is an answer for that. It's real simple. Let go of trying to have it both ways. That is the epitome of James chapter 1. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I want this still, and I want this. Like that old rap song, you can get with this, or you can get with that. You're saying, no, I can get with this, and I can get with that. You've changed the song, and the reality is you cannot. You cannot. But here's the thing, my friend. God loves you and will break you, or you can do it. It's up to you, right? <laughs> Amen. One more person that I miss. Yes, ma'am. Well, I would say this, lower them. Yes. It's not wrong to expect. It's wrong to live by your expectations. Does that make sense? Too often we live by our expectations and not by our love. If you love people, it's okay to expect. They just shouldn't drive your choices. 
right? So I expect things from my wife. She expects things from me. But when they don't happen, it doesn't derail our relationship because we're not living by that. We're living by love for each other. Now, that's a difficult pattern. But what happens is you get disappointed enough and God keeps showing you in your disappointments how much you're living for yourself, you start making adjustments. Disappointments are a wonderful evaluation tool to assess what you're living for that God didn't promise. Because the hope of the Lord does not disappoint. So where you're disappointed, as either something you thought he was going to do that doesn't line up with his promises and precepts, or something you made more than what should be in that moment, and it's an opportunity to adjust. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, yes. With two grown children, I've had to adjust my desires to fit the situation. I've had to change because here's the word I've said. I didn't raise you like that. Where did you get that from? And it's like, mm, this is where how I want them to handle it versus the way they want to handle it. I have to make the assessment. It's not said in this situation. It's just that I raised you to do it this way and you're doing something different. I don't like it. But you're grown. You're in your own house. What can I do about it? Nobody deserves anything but hell. Okay? Everything this side of hell is mercy and grace. Does that make sense? The moment you get that in your mind, you will be free and enjoy and endure, because that's the reality, right? Enjoy when people are blessing, endure when they don't, because praise God, you got a blessing. So with that in mind, we want to transition to a difficult subject, one that when I was uh, working on my master's degree, and by the way, uh, thank you, Reggie, for mentioning the book. I wanted to talk about that. I won't be able to cover all the details, but if you want the details of this, the book I wrote called With All Your Heart, it is my dissertation at the master's level of working through this material. Years ago, I went to uh, master's, seminar, or master's college. Well, what do they call it now? Master's University has changed. And when I was working through, at that time, you had to do a dissertation to even graduate at a master's level. And so I was walking with my professor, and he says, well, you're about to graduate. What do you want to do your topic on? I said, I want to talk about idolatry. He said, everybody's talking about idolatry. This was back in the early uh, 90s. He said, why don't you deal with idolatrous lust? I said, what in the world is that? He said, I want you to consider this. Since you're interested in idolatry, I want you to go through the Old Testament, New Testament, and look up every avenue that you see the word idolatry. And I want you to go to the Old Testament and New Testament, every avenue you see the word lust. And as you research every avenue of idolatry and lust, see what your conclusions are, and then let's talk about it. That was one of the best things I could have ever done. And so my research went through all the Old Testament, New Testament, looked at idolatry, looked at lust, and discovered something. Idolatry was never an end, it was an avenue, and lust was an end. And in both ways, it was ways of worshiping something apart from God. Let me give you an idea. Um, I like, because I like to eat, which is my problem, I like to use the analogy of the refrigerator, okay? You go to the refrigerator not because of the refrigerator itself, but why do you keep going to the refrigerator? 
Right. And when there's nothing no longer in that refrigerator, what do you do? Or, amen, go to the store. Or you go to another refrigerator, right? So if that refrigerator broke down, stopped working, stopped providing, you go somewhere else because the refrigerator was never the end. It was the avenue to what you wanted, okay? That's what an idol is. You keep going to it not because it's so valuable, but because what you believe it brings to you is valuable, so you keep going to it. That's the idol. The lust is the thing that you are after that you want. That's the end. And when we talk about idolatrous lust, we're going to break it down in this hour or so, and I'm going to try to help you think through the distinctions, and I want you to see how this happens in your life. Because we started to talk about it last night, but this is at the core of the issues of your heart. This is why you can know truth and still walk in sin. This is why you can be in a church for years, know all the right things, and still do dumb stuff, okay? It's not because you don't know. It's not because you don't have the insight. not because you don't belong to Jesus. But this area of our hearts, which has really broken me over these last 20 or so years, helped me understand a lot of the dumb stuff I would do all the time and how I had minimized my relationships to this refrigerator resource agenda. And I discovered that my wife could never really make me happy because I'd reduced her to a means to an end. And it didn't matter what she did, it was never enough. And as I began to see that, I had to seek God's forgiveness, humble myself, ask for my wife's forgiveness because she was an idol. And you know, when you reduce something to an idol, they can never fail you and they can never mess up because you depend on them at a level that you were never designed to depend on them for. How many people in your life are at that level where they can't do anything wrong because if they do anything wrong, it costs you what you value from them? And it's not so much that you care about them as much as you're consumed with them with what they bring to you. You show me a controller. I'll show you an idol worshiper. Where have you been? Where are you going? What are you doing? Why are you so consumed with that person's whereabouts and decision-making? Not because you're so caring about them, but you are so concerned that if they make one decision one way or the other, it's going to cost you blank. And blank is so important to you that you've been worshiping blank and worshiping this person to give you blank. And guess what? This person has power over you in ways, not because they're powerful, but because of your worship of them and your desire for them to give you or not take from you blank, you put them in the wrong place. I can't tell you how dangerous it is. When someone says to me, I can't do without you, it sounds good on the outside, but if you really go beneath the surface, what do you mean you can't do without me? Why am I special to you? You ever thought about that? Why are certain people special to you? It's not so much because you thank God for who they are and what they've done. You thank God because of the benefits it gives you and because that benefit is so great, you don't want them to mess up or go anywhere because of what you're getting that you crave. That's not really making someone special, is it? That's really 
idolatry, this worship. It's, it's not so much about you as much as what you do for me. And, and the older I've gotten and the more I've understood this, it, it helps me to be careful of praise. Because, you know, people can praise you today and be ticked off at you in 24 seconds. And you have to think, why are they praising me? It's not so much because of who I am. It's the benefit I give to them. What happens when I don't give them that benefit anymore? That's why I tell people, be careful of saying the words, I love you. What you're really saying is, I appreciate you. Because why are you telling me you love me? Not because of an action you're doing towards me, but because of something I'm bringing to you. That's not a love for me. That's an appreciation of what you like that I'm giving you. Because as soon as you're upset with me, you're not going to tell me how much you love me. Because that wasn't love, not the love according to Scripture. It's always challenge people. When you say, I love you, what are you really saying? I appreciate you. Because the truth to love someone, you take it back to 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, all of that. So if you are demonstrating that and then verbally acknowledging that, well, that's great. But in most cases, we're not demonstrating and verbally acknowledging it. We're just enjoying the benefits of another person, and then we're describing that as love. I, I, I call it, I, you know, I, I pick on Michael Jackson. That's because I like Michael Jackson. But the way you make me feel, you really turn me on, and I just love you. <laughs> Do you really? I've, I've shared with, you know, many pastors, and, and my wife and I, we talk about just the reality of relationships and people. And when we sit down together and we talk, we say, you know, let, let's be real about the people in our lives and about where things are. We know the people who love us, and we know the people who appreciate us. And we understand when that's going to change, when we have to make some decisions they no longer like. And that appreciation is going to change. So we have those real conversations because we try to be real about relationships with people because we're understanding that we're all at certain levels with people in all different relationships. And, and not everybody likes us. Uh, there's some people who truly love us, and there's some people who just appreciate what we do for them, and they don't mind sharing it with the world. And then Pastor Allen has to make a decision that doesn't affect them in the way they want, and then we get all the hate mail. And I share with my wife sometimes, I said, honey, um, today is the day that the Jones family is no longer going to be in the congregation because now I have to tell them something they don't want to hear. So get prepared for the fallout and all the nasty stuff that's about to happen because they love us until they don't, which is not really love us. They're going to be upset today because they have to call out some sin. So be prepared for the hate mail. Five, four, three, two. Oh, I can't stand that Ellen family and that church and all those people. And remember, well, just 24 hours ago, we were the best thing since sliced bread. When you understand the dynamics of idolatrous lust, it forces you to look at relationships differently. Now, with that in mind, I want to begin to unfold idolatrous lust. And let's, let me give you a working definition, uh, and then we're going to break it down into details. Idolatry is, again, the avenue that you use to get what you want. It's a form of worship. You're willing to bow down to man or anybody to get blank. It's an avenue where you have given over and created something as a God. And we'll get into details. 
Lust are the things that you want so bad you're willing to sin to get to sin when you don't get, and that's the thing that you're after. And what happens in our hearts is that all of us have a lot of idolatrous lust going on. You say, well, I don't know where that is. Well, I'm going to help you today. You show me where you're angry, you show me where you're worried, and I'll show you the idolatrous lust in your life. Because anger and worry are two sides of the same coin. When I'm worried, I'm consumed with something that I may lose or not gain. When I'm angry, I believe I lost it or didn't get it. But it's the same coin. It's still around worship of something that you've made more important than loving God and loving others. Now, we're going to break that down into some realities, and then I want you to begin to look at your life. And here's what you're going to discover. If you are married, you have been worshiping your spouse. You say, no, I haven't. I don't worship them. Sure you do. When you are consumed with their every decision, when you're upset and mad and worried about what they're doing, you have reduced them to an idol. But why are you upset and mad about what they're doing? Because it does not bring you blank. Or blank is lost. Or you're not getting blank, which is why you are angry or mad or why you are happy or sad. Because blank has become the center of the relationship and blank is what keeps y'all together, not the love of God and love of each other. And you come to counseling to figure out how the other person can see that they're wrong so they can finally give you blank. Am I making sense to you? And I've watched men try to play the spiritual game with me with intellectual games. Well, well pastor... You know, I, I'm going to have to disagree with you there, Pastor Ellen, because the Bible says that the woman is to show respect to her husband. The Bible says she is to submit. And I'll say, well, brother, you're so right. But do you have control over that? And why are you consumed with that? Well, I just want her to be godly. Yeah, okay. Let's, <laughs> let's move through all the spiritual garbage and let's get down to the nitty-gritty. If you wanted what God wanted, then you would embrace that in his sovereignty, he's moving, not in your time frame. So if you really wanted what God wanted, you would be acting differently in this moment. What you want is for her to be this way so you can get what you want. And your worship of being respected is so great that you're focused on her character flaws and deficiencies, and you want her fixed because she is the avenue to give you the worship you have of this respect. Because if you wanted what God wanted, you recognize that her sanctification determines when she's going to respect you, and that has nothing to do with you. That has everything to do with how much she's willing to live or not live to please God, just like she's craving your love, and she believes that if you just change and she can fix and manipulate, she can finally get it from you, not because she cares about you, but because of her worship of being loved. So the conflicts keep happening over and over again because two people are worshiping each other because they're worshiping something they want. There's not a loving and living to please God. So therefore, we're living to please ourselves and we're praying that God will give us what we want, give us what we want, give us what we want. We're going to church. We're studying our Bibles. We've been good little Christians, Lord. Change them, change them, change them. Do you see how ugly it sounds when you really get to what the heart of it is? but we garb it with spiritual stuff. I just want them to be holy. Well, if you want them to be holy, why are you harassing them about it? Why are you trying to be the Holy Spirit in their lives? Well, 
Aren't we supposed to keep people accountable, Pastor? Oh, that is so true, but let's talk about what accountability is. Accountability only works when people want to be accountable. You're trying to be the convictor, and they're not interested. Yeah, but somebody has to do something. Yeah, and that somebody is God called the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And as you keep yeah, butting, here's the reality. You're exposing how much you want what you want when you want it, which means this marriage is more about your worship of what you want, and this person is a means to the end. Because if you wanted what God wants, you would accept that maybe what I want I can't have at this moment. What if I adjusted my desires to fit the situation? What if I focused on how to please God and love this person versus where they're lacking in what they need to do for me? But the reason I can is because of this thing called idolatrous lust. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 gives us the characteristics of idolatry. Let's begin to unpack that together. Uh, this characteristic of idolatry, I love this verse as, again, this Old Testament we see in the book of Jeremiah, uh, God is talking about his chosen people who have forsaken him. And all out through the prophets and the major and minor prophets, it's pretty much the same message. You have forsaken me. There will be consequences, but yet there is a future for Israel. We don't have time to get into those details. But he starts to talk about, which is helpful for us, because as his chosen people of the Old Testament, the Jews, rejected him, so the church does the same individually in many, many areas. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. And pay attention to these two evils. Very important. My people have committed two evils. Evil number one, they have forsaken me. Number one. Evil number two, well, then he talks about who he is, the fountain of living waters. Evil number two, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've turned from me, the source, and they turn to themselves and their own creative ideas to provide for them what I provide. Now, let that sink in for a moment. They've turned from me, turned to themselves to create an avenue that's broken to provide what only I provide. When we talk about idolatry, idolatry, as we start to break it down, let's look at this definition. It is depending on some aspect of life or creation as you should depend on God, which in Jeremiah was categorized as broken cisterns. Broken cisterns are, again, man-made, unreliable large pits dug in the rock covered with plaster used to gather the rainwater. When cracks develop in cisterns, they would hold no water, unlike the reliable natural springs of living water, which always provided water no matter the situation, which was symbolizing God. Idolatry is leaning on something other than God. That becomes the source of your satisfaction. It becomes the solution to your problems. Secondly, let it be, idolatry, again, is dependence on some aspect of life class slash creation at the level of worship above to get what we treasure above God. Now, let me make that plain. So, I am turning from God, and I'm leaning on something else other than God, which I've placed that above God, to get something that I want that's more important to me than God. Y'all understanding where we're going here? 
So idolatry is one aspect of worship where I'm turned from God to this thing because I believe this is the source and the solution for me to bring me blank. And blank becomes the other avenue. We hadn't gotten there yet, which is where the lust comes in. Is everybody tracking with me so far? All right, letter C. Idolatry is dependence on certain aspects of life or creation at the level of worship above God. Watch this, making them the avenue to our satisfaction and the solution to our problems. That's what idolatry is about. Avenue, my satisfaction, solution to my problems. Letter D, idolatry is the preoccupation with some aspect of life or creation above and apart from the creator. Watch this, for what purpose? To bring something some longing or longings of our hearts that have become the lust of our hearts. Israel did not worship Baal for the sake of Baal. They worshiped Baal for what Baal could bring. Baal was never the end. It was an avenue. The worship of false gods are not because of the value of the false gods in and of themselves. It's what the belief of what the false gods would bring. Idolatry is what you bow down to in order to get something else that you crave apart from God. And we'll discover a little bit later, we do a lot of bowing down to each other, not because we love, but because we're using and worshiping to get something else that we worship above God. And the true problems you'll discover in your life at the core is not the pots and pans, it's not all this external stuff. You've got some things in your heart that are way more important to you than loving God and loving others. And your controlling nature and the arrogance of believing you can make something happen reveals just how much worship you have of either your own resources in order to get whatever blank is. I always tell folk, you know, control freaks are not really necessarily control freaks. It's not the end. It's the avenue. You only control because it's something you worship. And you're trying to control in order to keep it or maintain it or to get it. Control in of itself is not the root issue. It's the fruit. Why do you try to control your husband? Why do you try to control your wife? Why do you try to control your children? It's not so, oh, why do you try to control circumstances? It's not so much of the control of the circumstances. It's if I can keep this under wraps, if I can be God in this situation, I'll keep blank or gain blank. We haven't gotten to what blank is yet. But we're leaning on the part. So idolatry, think of it as the refrigerator. It's the thing I keep leaning to to get what I want. Secondly, part number two, the creation of idolatry. Idols are created when we no longer, point number two, when we no longer look to God as the source of our satisfaction. Now, let that sink in. That is what you do for an idol. When it's no longer God, you go to it because you believe it's the source of your satisfaction, but let it be, you also believe it's the solution to your problems. Think about how many things you have made the source of your satisfaction and the solution to your problems. We'll get to some examples in a moment. We no longer, let us see, look to God as the source of our satisfaction, and we look to his creation to bring it to us. They have forsaken me. That's what he said in that passage. And turn to broken systems. When we no longer look to God as a solution to our problems, we look to his creation to bring it to us. Let, let me show you how we do that, and we have to be careful as Christians. There is a lot of political jargon and fights and fusses going on 
no matter what side of the coin. And too often, we believe that with the right president, the right governor, the right city councilman, the right mayor, whatever, that's going to change our situation. And we believe the right party, whatever that party is for you, if they're in office, everything's going to be great. If the other party's in office, everything's going to be miserable. Now, here's the problem with that. <laughs> Regardless of what party's in office, it's still the same direction and same insight God has given you. And it's never dependent on what party's in office. And the moment you get into that division, now you have to follow the logic of that party, which sometimes doesn't fit the logic of God's agenda for you. God didn't call us to take sides. He called us to take over. And the moment you take sides, you can't take over because you're stuck to a political party. And watch this. You're doing what idolatry is about. See, idolatry is taking some aspect of creation and saying, this is the problem. And then idolatry is saying, taking some other aspect of creation and saying, this is the solution. Isn't that worship? And too often we worship our political parties. We believe they are the answer. And God says, I've never depended on a political party to accomplish my agenda. And the moment you do that, watch this, then you get into something else that I see the games that are played. You get into race relations instead of grace relations. See, political party plays race games. Jesus called us to walk in grace. And the more you get tied to certain parties, you start to hear the talking points of the party versus the talking points of God's word. And when the talking parts of your party are more important than the talking points of God's word, you have now turned that into a worship. Now, I'm not telling you to not get involved in politics, and I do believe it's important, and I believe that there's some things you need to do, but I hear too many Christians talking more political than Jesus. I know they're talking points of their party based upon them watching Fox or CNN versus the talking points of God's scripture. And they're more sold out to the vote than they are to the victorious stand we have in Christ. That's idolatry. I would tell folk in our church all the time, um, if you were looking for the Democratic church, let me send it to you. It's down the street. If you're looking for the Republican church, let me send it to you down the street. We don't promote parties here. We promote Christ here. Now, we promote voting. We ask you to vote according to Scripture, and sometimes that leans more to one party than the other. I won't get into that. However, the reality is the moment you make that the center if I know you more by your party than your Jesus, we're in idolatry land. Are you understanding what I'm saying here? That's a problem in this country, and Satan is manipulating so many Christians because our neediness and greediness to have a culture that fits our agenda, which won't come through a party, it's going to come through Christ. It's really not going to come until his kingdom is set. Are y'all tracking with me? We have to be careful. Now, I'm not saying, oh, we just, so we just ignore, you know, the things that are going on in our society. We ignore that some party is making dumb decisions. No, we don't ignore it, but we surely don't worship it as if that's the answer. 
And we surely don't go against Scripture when it tells us to pray for our government. Well, I only pray for my government if a Democrat is in there. Well, I only pray if a Republican's in there. I'm not going to follow the Scripture unless my party's in there. Then I'll follow the Scripture. Really? That's a very dangerous perspective. That's worship. Does that make sense? What if your friend who's a Democrat needs you? Oh, God forbid. What if your friend is a Republican needs you? Oh, God forbid. So now we're divided by parties versus representative for Christ? So we have to be very, very careful because that's an aspect of creation and said this is the problem and then we're saying another aspect of creation is the solution. Isn't that Romans chapter 1 all over again, worshiping the creation above the? Be careful, saints. That's another form of manipulation, needy, greedy. That's another con. And please remember, guys, when you take a text out of context, you will always get a con. Did you catch that? Too many people are taking texts out of context, and they're conning us. And it seems right and sounds right, so we're sincerely submitting to it. Doesn't follow Scripture. All right, let me get off my soapbox. Anyway, so with this creation of idolatry, point number three, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, God says that the Israelites have set up idols in their hearts, and they had come to counsel from him, should he even address them. So the reality is, here's God saying, wait a minute, you've set up these idols in your heart, and now you're coming to me for counsel. Why are you coming to me for counsel when you've been leaning on your own idols all this time? And what do you want me to do as you come to me? Are you coming to me so that I can uh, rule over it, or are you coming to me to co-sign on what you already believe to be true, and you want me to bless that? The reality is, idols are evil in the sight of God, number one. Secondly, idols lead us away from serving God and serving his creation. It doesn't matter what aspect it is. Idols lead us to stumbling into further sin, and idols lead God to have to address us according to our sin instead of requests that we bring to him. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. But we have to be careful. Sometimes our prayers are not being answered because they're laced with the right words, but we don't recognize the agenda behind the words. I can't tell you how many husbands I've challenged on, you don't care about your wife. I hear all this scripture, oh, Lord, make her like you, Lord. Lord, help her to be the woman that you want her to be. But what are you really saying? So I can get the respect I've been demanding all this time. Oh, Lord, change my husband. Make him the man of God so he'll finally love me the way I deserve to be loved because of all the stuff I've been, all the crap I've had to deal with. Lord, make him like you. When you get behind the heart of many prayers and you start to see the worship of our desires and the idols that we put together, it's dangerous because we're so deceived. That's why I tell people, I learn more about you where you're angry and where you're worried. I can help you discover where your idolatrous lusts are. Because where you're angry and where you're worried, that's the center of what's important to you. Let me give you some examples. Am I making sense so far? Let's look at 
point number four, and I want to give you some examples of things we turn into idols. And I want you to just kind of pay attention to this because as you see this, you're going to see your life. And again, these are the avenues. These are the things you depend on apart from God. And let's go back to, again, the categories of idolatry. Remember, idolatry is the dependence on certain aspects of life or creation at the level of worship above God, making them the avenue to our satisfaction and the solution to our problems. Idolatry is the preoccupation with some aspect of life or creation above and apart from life or apart from the creator to bring some longing or longings of our hearts that have become the lusts of our hearts. So in other words, idolatry is not what I'm after, it's what I use to get what I'm after. Idolatry is the, the source, it's the thing that I'm looking to to give me what I crave. And let me give you some examples in life of things we have turned into idols. For example, depending on people as the source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems above and apart from God to bring us some longing and longings of our hearts that have become the lust of our hearts, making the lust the source of our satisfaction and the end of our problems. In other words, I hook up with you because of the thing that I crave that you give to me. Maybe I like affection a lot, and, and, you know, I don't get a lot of affection over here. So I come to church not because I want to worship God and encourage others, but at church I get all the affection I don't get at home. And so I keep serving and getting connected to all these people, not because I care about them, but, man, the affection I get. And when I don't get a phone call or when they don't pay attention to me, then I don't want to be at that church anymore, and I don't like that pastor anymore because they don't treat me the way I deserve to be treated. So then the small group wasn't so that you can invest to the glory of God and serve. It was so that you could get the affection. So you worship the people as a means to your end. And when they longer to satisfy your end, you rejected the means. Am I making sense, ladies and gentlemen? Here's another example of idolatry. I won't read all the details. Now you get the picture. Depending on places depending on products, depending on perspectives, depending on positions, depending on power, depending on platforms. Here's the one I just got on my soapbox on. Depending on politics, depending on money, depending on medication, depending on the media, depending on ministry. We can take these issues and turn them into idols. They become the thing that we focus on to give us what we crave. Now, with that in mind, let me show you a working cycle of how idolatry works, okay? So you look at your notes. Here's how it works. You have this dilemma. We no longer accept and embrace God as the source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems. Well, when that happens, then guess what? The downfall, we turn from God and turn to his creation as the source of our satisfaction and the solution to our problems. The direction, when God is no longer the source of our satisfaction, the solution to our problems, we make man and creation big, and what do we do with God? Isn't that interesting? Resulting in a lack of fellowship with God and leading to deeper sin in our lives. And then the discipline, we can expect God to address our sin of idolatry as he sees fit while not addressing our prayer requests as we desire. If we keep 
Resisting God's discipline, we fall further away from God, resulting in further negative consequences to experience as a result. Idolatry is what you look to. Lust is what you crave after. And we're about to get there. The moment we understand this, we can bring some specifics to our lives to look at when we're angry or worried, what's really going on. What are we depending on in a way that we shouldn't in order to have something in a way that we should not have? And why is God not answering our prayers? Before we go any further, commercial break, take a couple of minutes, review this concept of idolatry, and then we're going to begin to transform and look at the concept of lust and then bring it all together to help you see a reality of what's happening in your life. Take a few moments. So we're at 30 minutes now, right? 9.15? Yeah, perfect. I can communicate it to them. I think some of them understand it. Some of them just are deciding. If you want me to share it with them, I can. And if you wanted to show them your book, I don't know. Yeah. I just read it again. Maybe when we do take the break, maybe um, Reggie or someone can just put it up. Okay. That works? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You good? You all right?
Okay, everybody. Let's turn in your Bibles back to James chapter 1. We want to look at verses 13 to verses 14. We want to transition to talk about lust. Now, with that in mind, just for those that, just to kind of give you an idea, uh, to inform you, the commercial breaks are meant to connect you to each other, not to go to the bathroom and go check out the bookstore and all that, right? The regular breaks are when you do all of that. I'm just trying to give you an idea. So if you end up missing something, know that I'm going to keep moving whether you're in or out. You got it? All right? She said, well, did you say it? Well, you're in the room? No. Hey. I do my students like that all the time. It's a, it's a challenge. You with me so far? So just to give you an idea, that's what the commercial breaks are for, and then the actual break is the other. Now, I'm not telling you to hold it, okay? You know, he said I can't. No, I'm not trying to do all of that, right? You got to go, you got to go. No problem, all right? So just please know what we're trying to do. Make sense, everybody? All right, look at your Bibles, James chapter 1, uh, verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Then verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his what? Now, some Bibles has lust, some Bibles have desire. The idea there is evil desire. That's what lust is. Lust is an evil desire. In other words, I made something evil because of my preoccupation with it. Now, let, let me... I don't have the time to do it the way I want to do it. But there are three categories of desires we can talk about that this works with. And I'm going to just take a little bit of time to press that in. Write these three categories down. When it comes to desires, they can come in three categories. And you can turn any of these into lust. Natural desires. Okay, and let me give you a description of natural desires. The desire to eat. The desire to sleep the desire for sex. These are natural. They come standard. In other words, you know how you get some cars, some things come standard and some things are upgrades? Okay. Well, when you were created by God, you were created with a natural desire to eat, to sleep, and for sex. That comes standard with creation. Now, what happens is when you turn it into worship and you lust for it, sleep becomes laziness Sex becomes perverted because you have sex outside of God's design, and eating becomes gluttonous. That's when you turn a desire that is good into something evil. That's when it's a lust. You worship it. So a natural desire can become lustful, and this is what confuses people. Well, I have to eat. Yeah, but you don't have to eat that much. Okay, that's gluttonous, and now you've turned this into lust. Yeah, but I have to sleep. Yeah, but you should have got up three hours ago to go to work. But God gave me a desire for sex, and he gave you a context by which you are to operate in sex. And when you operate outside of his design, of course you're not going to get what God intended, and now you are struggling because you're using sex in a way God did not intend for you to use it. Does everybody get that? That's when you turn something, a natural desire, into something evil. That's a lust. Now, let me talk about another category of desires. We call these neutral desires. Neutral desires are the things in life that God has given us the freedom to explore. There is no prohibition 
or there's no command against. In other words, if you wanted to be a doctor, a lawyer, if you wanted to go fishing, uh, if you wanted to see a Broadway show, if you wanted to uh, go out and travel. Again, these are the neutral things that God does not put a restraint on as far as should you not do it or not do it, okay? But when you want that more than you want to obey God, you turn it into a lust. Now you're never at church because you're always traveling. Now making money is more important to you than making disciples. Now you're lying on your taxes and you're lying on your resumes to get ahead. All of that now, you've turned something neutral into something of worship, lust. Am I making sense to you? And then you have the third category of desires, which are already nasty, and we call those naughty desires. So you got the neutral, you got the natural, neutral, and naughty. Okay, what are the naughty desires? Lust of the eyes. I can have whatever I see. Lust of the flesh, I can do whatever I want. Pride of life, I can be whatever I want. It's dangerous when people say, you can be whatever you want to be. Oh, ah. I know it sounds cute and nice and it sounds politically correct, but that is completely wrong. You know, Be whatever you want to be. Well, what if what you want to be doesn't fit what God has designed you to be? Pride of life. You can do whatever you want to do. This is America. <clears throat> Not necessarily. And that's, again, lust of the flesh. Do whatever I want to do. Lust of the eyes. I can have whatever I see. See, those are already naughty by nature. Some of y'all will catch that later. Okay? So what's the reality we're saying here? These desires, when you think about it, all can become lustful. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Each one is carried away when he's enticed by his own lust. That's the idea. Now, let's break that down some more. Am I making sense to you so far? So, you get these categories. And so, when I'm dealing with people and their lustful desires, I'm trying to distinguish between what's natural, what's neutral, and what's naughty already. And as I'm listening to them, there are certain things, and all of you have certain things that you are connected to in that category, and you've made it a form of worship, and you've been looking to this person, this place, this perspective, this product to give it to you. And as long as you get what you want, you're good. But as soon as you don't, you are a not-so-nice person to be around because your life is not driven by love for God and love for others. It's driven by this idolatrous lust cycle. Letter A, lust of the hearts are longings that have become constant cravings of our hearts in an evil or wrong way. Lust of the hearts are longings that have moved, let it be, from something we want to something we must have, making something that was once a good thing now an evil thing, making it a sin in our lives because we are consumed with it above God and his will. Lust of our hearts are the longings that have become such a preoccupation of our hearts that we're easily enticed by the devil when it comes to them because they have become inordinate sinful affections of our soul. Lust of the heart are longings that have become such a preoccupation in our hearts that we're willing to sin to obtain them, sin to keep them, sin when we do not receive them, or sin when we lose them, making those longings of worship in our lives above worship and obedience to God. Kind of the idea before we go any further, you know, you've heard the term in, in some biblical circles, the fear of man, right? 
the fear of man is just really idolatry. You put man in the place of God in your life, and what you're fearful of is them not giving you something you want or taking something from you that you want. And because of your craving of what you want and you believe they are centered to it, you give them more power in your life than they should have. And it's not that they're powerful. You've made them powerful because of what you want from them or don't want them to take from you that you believe they have the power to do. So you put them in the place of God. That's why there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. But the more I'm intimidated by you, I can't love you because I'm too consumed with what you can give me or take away from me because that's the center of my world. That's that idolatrous lust working. Am I making sense? But the moment I love you more than what you can take or do for me, you no longer can have control in my life. Why? Because I care about you. I'm not consumed with you. I'm concerned for you, but I don't really. Let me see if I can put it in a way that makes sense. I don't care what you think of me so I can spend time caring for you. Does it make sense? But the more I care what you think of me is because I'm too consumed with what you can take from me and not do for me. That's all self-centered. That's all about reducing you to being big and God being small and making you big in my life. Not because you are. This is that, that thing I tell people um, when it comes to this age-old concern, the drug dealer, the drug addict. And I had this conversation in my class, and I purposely started a debate. I said, who has the power? Is it the drug dealer or the drug addict? And half the class, this is a drug dealer. We got to get those guys off the street because this is a drug dealer. That has, and, and then some, no, it's a drug addict. And I look go back and forth, back and forth. I said, well, how many of you remember the term from college, supply and demand? And they would say, well, what do you mean? I said, okay, let me explain what supply and demand is. You know, if something's in demand, the more supply you have, the more it works for you and you make money and people are happy because you're giving them what they want. I said, but let me share with you, and I had a young crowd. I said, I've got some eight-track tapes. <laughs> and they looked at me, Whoa. I said, y'all don't know what eight-track tapes are? I said, Google it. I said, well, then this makes it easy. I got some eight-track tapes in here, and I'm selling them at, you know, I'll give you five for $10. Do I have any takers? Okay, y'all look like some good, sweet people. Tell you what, I'll give you 20 for $2. No takers, huh? I said, well, I got some flat screen smart TVs that I'm selling at $10 a piece. I promise they're not hot. But I'm selling them at $10 a piece. Do I have any takers in the room? Flat screen. Amen. Anybody else? Anybody else? <laughs> I said, now, what just happened? I said, the reality is the only reason a drug dealer has power is because the drug addict likes what they're selling. I said, Satan is the masterful drug dealer. The power he has in your life is only tied to the fact that you like what he's selling. If you didn't like what he was selling, he wouldn't have that power. I'm not saying he doesn't have power. I'm saying his power doesn't work. It's like when Jesus said when he was here, even though he was God and took on the form of man, he says, Satan has nothing in me. I love that term. What is he saying? Satan can't entice me. There's nothing that he has that in me I want or can be volatile to. What does it mean for you and I? The same power to raise Christ from the dead is within you and within me. 
See, the problem is I want something else more than I want my relationship. And Satan understands that reality. The moment you realize that, you go, oh, Satan is powerful, but the Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee. Isn't that what it says in the book of James? Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Remember the one thing that God won't do is obey for you? But he gives you the power to obey, so why are you not obeying? Because there's this thing over here that I want that I've made way more important. And there's some other avenues other than God that will give it to me if I'm willing to sacrifice God's agenda for it. Am I making sense? Let's walk through this a little bit more. So with this in mind, lust of the hearts, again, we talked about the sin to keep them and sin when we don't. Uh, we lose them, making the longings of worship in our lives. I want you to turn to this Old Testament for a moment and look at Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. I love this verse, and when I was doing my research for my dissertation back then, I said, this is every Bible church in America. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. Listen to these words. And they come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Can I tell you what he just said? Those people come to church, they love good expository teaching and preaching. And they brag on how much exegetical training they get at their church. But they're not doing any of it. They're consumed with the desires of their hearts. But they'll come and hear and shake their heads and go, oh, this is great preaching. And I didn't get that at the other church I was in. They did way too much topical stuff, and they didn't really get into the Bible. This church gets into the Bible. <laughs> but as deep as they get into the Bible, you're still deep in your own heart with your other stuff. You had a change of location but it hasn't dealt with the heart of what you want, more important than loving God and loving others. Any Bible church in America fits that. Does that make sense, guys? So let's break this down a little bit. So the characteristics of this or the commitment of the lust of our hearts, letter A, when we're committed to the lust of our hearts, we will still listen to truth and delight in the truth we hear, but we will not obey that truth because we're preoccupied with the lust of our hearts. When we're committed to the lust of our hearts, they become a constant topic of discussion. When we're committed to the lust of our hearts, we are in constant pursuit of obtaining them. When we're committed to the lust of our hearts, we do not find obedience to God, something to be treasured above the lust we have treasured in our hearts. There's a cancer to this that we don't even see. And that's what James chapter 4 is about. Verses 1 to verses 4. What is the source of conflicts among you? Come they not from the pleasures that wage within you what? Lust. Do not obtain. Point number six, letter A. The lust of our hearts can lead us to kill others or at least be envious of them. The lust of our hearts can lead us to create conflict with others. The lust of our hearts can lead us to pray selfishly. The lust of our hearts can lead us to be friends with the world system, resulting in acting as enemies of God. 
What are the consequences of this? Galatians 6 tells us that if we walk in the flesh, we shall from the flesh reap corruption. James 1.15 says the end of sin is what? Death. Now, for you as a saint, because our salvation is secure, it's a loss of rewards. It's not a loss of your salvation. But here's the reality for you and I. Sometimes we don't recognize that what God is preparing for us is way more satisfying than the things we're trying to do here. It's a dangerous place to be. Uh, let me give you some examples of this. And I want you to look at these categories, and I want you to circle the ones that make sense to you. Number nine, the categories of lust of our hearts. Remember, lust of our hearts are desires we believe we cannot do without being satisfied. We're willing to sin to obtain them, sin to keep them, sin we do not receive them, or sin when we lose them, making these longings a worship of our lives above worship and obedience to God. When I'm counseling people, what I've tried to help them see is that the conflict in your marriage, the conflict in your family, the conflict in your church, the, the frustrations you have in life are tied to these things that you have turned into something more than they should be. This is what psychology, if you look at some of these things, psychology would call these needs, and they're not needs. And you know what's fascinating about these things I'm about to read? In order for you to get any of these things I'm about to read, someone has to decide to give it to you. That's what's so frustrating about everything I'm going to read. So the moment you turn it into the worship of your life, then you have to depend on that joker to give it to you, and they're so inconsistent. Am I in your house yet? <laughs> and someone told you that you must have this in order to be the best person you can be. Your life coach has been telling you this. I've been trying to help you build your self-esteem and learn to love you and to choose you first and to make yourself a priority because you need self-care because you've been loving everybody else so much and these are the things you have in order for you to be what you need to be and they just won't seem to line up because these things are so valuable. You can obey God without any of these things. You can be transformed without any of these things. But these are the things as we walk through that you've made way more important than loving God and loving others, and you're miserable, and you keep leaving churches and leaving men and women. You keep leaving relationships. You keep walking out of job. You name it, because blank has become the center, and you've reduced everything else as a means to this end. And because you want it more than you want anything else, you can easily be manipulated because this is where you're needy and where you're greedy. And this is what you've turned into in a way, a place of lust. This is the center of James 4, the quarrels and conflicts, because these are the pleasures that are waging war in your heart. And pay attention to all of them, because each and every one of them, someone has to decide to give it to you. And if they don't give it to you, you are messed up. Pay attention. To be loved by others, that has become a demand, a craving we believe we can't live without. To be accepted. To be understood. To never be hurt or disappointed. To be respected by others to be served by others, to have personal preferences accommodated at all times, to be viewed as competent, to be approved of, to belong to someone, to be held in high regard, to be significant to others, to be satisfied by others, to maintain a favorable position with others, to be secure and safe with others, to never be alone, to have someone exposed for the way they've ministered or mistreated you, 
to have someone suffer the consequences for what they did to you. Am I in your house yet? <laughs> when these desires become demands, they become worship. And you look to any person, place, or avenue to give it to you. That's why you're worried. That's why you're angry. That's why you have all this anxiety. That's why you're depressed. That's why you're miserable. Because you've made this way more important. And you circle the ones. The fight you had coming here in the car. The fight you had going home last night. The fight that's still raining in your life with that person. I can trace it back to right here. And you've made that way more important. And you've reduced them to a means to an end. Look at this cycle of lust. Here's what happens. The dialogue of the world. Satan uses the world to speak to the desires of our hearts that have become the lust of our hearts. It's a commercial I can't get out of my head. BK, have it your way, you rule. Everywhere I go in the country, I turn the television on. I hear BK. I mean, I'm in California or all around the country. I hear that same commercial. What is Satan trying to tell me? You can have it your way. You rule. You are the center. It is a lie from the pit of hell. But too often, we keep listening, we keep listening, we keep listening, and it appeals to the heart because there are things in our hearts that we crave and we like the way that sounds. The deliberation of our hearts. As the world speaks to our hearts, appealing to the lust of our hearts while presenting various delights in the world that will lead us into sin to obtain or maintain the lust of our hearts, our minds contemplate pursuing or resisting these worldly desires. The direction of our lives. If we do not resist the temptation to find delight in the world instead of in Jesus Christ, we will live by earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the display of disobedience. If we do not resist the temptation to find our delight in the world instead of in Christ, we will walk in a lack of love for God and a lack of love for others revealing a life that is consumed with the lust of our hearts. We put all this together in closing, and that brings us to what idolatrous lust is. Now, before I go any further, do you see yourself? I'm not asking do you see the person sitting next to you. Do you see yourself? Now, take this back to what we talked about last night about what you can and can't control Take this back to last night with a point of choice. Trying to give you a wisdom mindset to see what's happening in your life. To help you understand why certain things keep going the way they're going. It's because these dynamics are at play. And in the wisdom of God and his word, he has exposed the reality of who and where you are and what's happening. And from there, you can begin to see what needs to happen that you, by his power, can begin to make changes in. But unless you see this and embrace this, this goes back to the map. You are here. That's what I've been doing for the last 24 hours. Trying to help you see you are here. Well, no, I'm not here. Well, then I can't help you. But if you see what you can and can't control, you can see that you've been God-centered, self-centered. You can see where this worship is coming together. We can begin to move to some other things we're going to talk about today. Because before any change can take place, you've got to see where you are and what's happening. All right. 
Uh, let's look at this definition, and we're going to shut this down. Something you bow down to you believe will bring you what you truly treasure while making what you truly treasure something you bow down to in the place of the living God. It is the various aspects of life and creation we worship above the creator as well as the basic ways we worship the creation above the creator. So when you look at idolatrous lust, number 10, this is how you put it together. Bowing down to people in order to receive acceptance. We treasure and crave in an inordinate way in place of loving God and loving others. That's idolatrous lust. Bowing down to education to be viewed as competent. You got the education not because you wanted to learn. You wanted to be smart enough and to be the smartest one in the room so people will recognize your competency. That's idolatrous lust. Money to bring some form of comfort that you made more important than God. That's idolatrous lust. Bowing down to control. You have to control everything so that your security can be there. That's idolatrous lust. Now, no one wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I think I'm going to have idolatrous lust today. <laughs> Number 11, here's how it works. Mindset. Your mind is set on things below instead of things above. Motivation. You begin to make self-interest a priority above God's will. Meditation. Your desires become preoccupations resulting in becoming lust. Methods. You look for avenues to satisfy your desires which have now become lust. Manner, you bow down and submit to these avenues in order to obtain what you have turned into lust, thus making these avenues idols you bow down to in order to get what you lust after. Mastered, you become a servant of your flesh. How do you deal with this? Number 12, I'm going to summarize number 12. You ready for these words? Real simple. Confess, repent, replace. That's the answer. Now, when I'm preaching, it's renounce, repent, replace. Because I like the R's. I like the alliteration. But renounce means confess. Confess, repent, replace. That's what number 12 is saying. That, all that detail there, that's how we deal with it. We confess, we repent, we replace. All of the problems you tend to have in these areas will boil down to those simple realities. Now, as we close, I have a journal here that I want you to look at in order to really explore this. Again, you don't do this in the morning because you haven't sinned good enough yet. Okay? You do this journal when the day is done, when you come home. Take some time. Look at these questions. What do you want today or what were you expecting to happen today? What did you want from it or expect to come from? Or who, or who did you want it from or expect it to come from? What desire desires would this fulfill in your life? How much of your time was spent thinking, speaking, and acting on what you wanted? What ways did you send in thoughts, words, or actions to get what you wanted? What ways did you send in thoughts, words, or actions when you did not get what you wanted? What person or persons did you send against to get what you wanted? What person or persons did you send against because you did not get what you wanted? What were your attitudes and actions like towards God and others as a result of getting what you wanted today? What were your attitudes and actions like towards God and others as a result of not getting what you wanted today? What biblical standards or principles could you use to explain your thoughts, words, and actions today? What biblical standards or principles should you have practiced in thoughts, words, and actions today? 
Were your thoughts, words, and actions towards others based primarily on how you felt or what God commanded, explain? What would happen if you took the time to answer these questions honestly before the presence of God and some others in accountability? My brothers and sisters, as I close this session, the root of your problems is not the people, not the past, not your parents, not the pressures, not the pains and problems. The root is you want something so bad you're willing to sin to get it and sin when you don't get it. And you've been looking to people, places, and products to have it. And you've reduced all of life to this big old worship in the form of idolatry and lust. And if I want to push your buttons, I try to take it from you and not give it to you. And I sway you any way I want to take you. And because you didn't know that about yourself, you don't realize why you get upset. You don't realize why you're worried. You don't realize why these things bother you so much. You don't realize why you're trying to control so much. It's idolatrous lust. 